welcome to The Raw Roast, where we have real conversation about faith and life over a good cup of coffee. My name is Tucker Anderson. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary Church, and I'm here today with Dr. Peter Vogt. Uh, Dr. Vogt has a PhD in Old Testament with a focus on Deuteronomy, and he's taught a variety of Old Testament courses at Bethel Seminary for many years uh, before becoming the senior pastor at LifePoint Church, not too far away here from our Roseville campus, and then uh, most recently has taken up the role of dean. Uh, at Bethel Seminary. And Peter, it is good to have you on the show today. It's an honor to be speaking with you. Thanks, Tucker. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, I consider it a privilege, too, because I've had you as a professor in my time at Bethel in my MDiv program and had you for hermeneutics and Hebrew. And uh, I really I really benefited from your courses. And uh, I mean, you were really instrumental in my um, development as a student of the Bible. So, well, thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's great. To it's be an a part honor to be in this role here, um, asking you the questions this time. And <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm glad to have you on. My uh, the topic I wanted to focus on is uh, really, I guess we could call it principles of interpretation. Um, one of my concerns, and I've mentioned this on another episode, is not just biblical illiteracy in our culture today, but I think that people are perhaps ignorant. Mm-hmm. of their own illiteracy mm-hmm. of the Bible. And and I think part of that might be we feel like we have to rely on um, only what experts say, um, not to not to devalue um, experts in mm-hmm. biblical interpretation, but I think sometimes we, we feel like we don't have the capacity ourselves to come to the Bible and understand what it says and then properly apply it. So yeah. I thought it'd be good to have a conversation around just what are some basic principles of good biblical interpretation. Yeah. Well, that's a great observation, uh, Tucker. And I think I think you're absolutely right. I do think there's a, a problem with biblical illiteracy. People don't know things, but they also don't know what to do with the Bible. It's It can seem so foreign, especially mm-hmm. the Old Testament and mm-hmm. the different genres of the Old Testament, the different types of writing that are there. That can seem so daunting because we don't know what to do with it. And, and so it's easier to say, well... You know, my pastor says this, and so this must be right. Or rather than thinking, well, you know, can I can I wrestle with this myself? I think one of the most important things about biblical interpretation is knowing what we're doing when we're interpreting the Bible. In other words, where do we locate meaning when we're reading the Bible? How do we decide what it means? You know, you can have this person says it means this, this person says it means that. How do you decide which is right? Are there are there principles that can govern that? And and I think there are. And I think one of the most important foundational principles when it comes to interpreting the Bible is to understand that what we're doing when we're interpreting is we're trying to understand what the original author was intending to communicate to the original audience. And that is really important because while the Bible, of course, is relevant for us, and it's it's written to us as, as followers of Jesus in a very general sense, mm-hmm. it's also the case that no book of the Bible is written with us in mind. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, nobody's thinking about 21st century Minnesotans when, yeah. when they're writing the biblical books. So we are, are tasked with thinking about that question. What did the original author intend to communicate to the original audience? And, and then we can take that answer and say, how is that relevant for us? But those are two different steps. And I think sometimes we get those confused. I've heard some people say that the Bible's written 
it's written for us, but it's not written to us. Yes. Do you think that's an important – is that a helpful distinction, I those think so. two prepositions? Yeah, I, I think so, and that's a great way to – I think it's a great way to put it because it it is for us. I mean, it is relevant for us and all that, but as I said, no no book is written with us in mind, so yeah. we, are not the, we are not the primary audience of, of any book of the Bible. So let's say that uh, you know I don't I haven't been to seminary I I don't have any you know formal Bible classes and I come to a passage of Scripture what would be the first thing that that I would want to do as a as a student of the Bible to best understand what the original author is saying to the to that original audience. So first, keeping that question in mind, you know, orienting yourself to that. So in other words, reading it and asking that question as opposed to saying, what does this say to me? Or, or mm-hmm. how is this relevant to me? We'll get there, mm-hmm. but you don't get there first. Yeah. Um, the second thing I would say is to be aware of the the type of writing that you're dealing with. There, there are different rules or conventions associated with different types of writing in the Bible, just as there are in in our world today. I mean, mm-hmm. when you read, well, maybe maybe we shouldn't talk about reading a newspaper because who yeah. does that anymore? <laughs> uh, so, no, if you're, but if whatever you're reading, you know, if you're reading a news article, that has a different set of rules for its interpretation than an editorial does in in the newspaper or or if you're online the same sort mm-hmm. of thing an opinion piece is different from a news from a news piece you you expect certain things from it and and those rules or conventions are known to the author and to the audience there's a what do we call it? Not a contract exactly, but a compact, an understanding yeah. of of how this works. And so the author follows certain conventions to communicate their intentionality, and mm-hmm. the reader then knows those things and and applies them and doesn't ask the wrong question. So one example that I use when I teach this is when you read an ad – you know that the author of that ad is trying to persuade you of something. You mm-hmm. don't expect objectivity. You don't expect that they're that they're not, you know, shading things in the way that makes their product look the best or, mm-hmm. or something like that. So, you know, when it says something like Ford Explorer is the best SUV, there's a an asterisk and then there's the the you know, it's the best SUV in its class and it's the only one in its class or whatever <laughs> whatever the case may be. That's a convention of that. And you know that going in yeah. so that you know to ask the right questions. Or hopefully hopefully most people know hopefully that. Hopefully <laughs> most people hopefully most people know it. But when you read a news article, it's different and you expect uh, that they're striving for objectivity. Mm-hmm. You expect that they, if they have a financial conflict of interest, they're going to note that, or or things like that that mm-hmm. will um, that will make it so that you, as a as a reader, can be informed and know that you're not. They're not trying to persuade you of mm-hmm. something other than they're trying to inform you. So they're not trying to convince you to buy a product. Whereas an ad, they certainly are. You raise something that's interesting to me because I. You know, I, as I'm just thinking here, like when I see, uh, let's say I get a letter from the bank or some, you know, some other kind of authority and, you know, it has very specific conventions. Sure. Um, it's not going to be written like a Facebook post, but I don't actually think in my mind like, oh, here's all the different conventions. It's right. just, we kind of implicitly know it. Right. And we respond accordingly. Yeah. Is that what kind of what you're saying then when we approach yeah. scripture? We, you know, these different genres, um, we... Probably the original readers would have a better understanding of those genres. I would, I would assume, 
and would perhaps understand how to approach those. Is that sure accurate? Yeah, and and just as you said, though, when you read a, a letter from your bank versus a Facebook post, at some point you were taught the differences. And mm-hmm. and an illustration that comes to mind is when my my oldest son, he's now twenty. But he was about four, I suppose, and he came running up the stairs and came to my wife and he said, we have to buy a swivel sweeper. <laughs> and, and my wife's like, why do we have to buy a swivel sweeper? And he said, because it's awesome. And he was watching something on TV and flipping through channels and came across an infomercial for, for a swivel sweeper. And you know, he watched it as a four-year-old and he's like, well, this is amazing. And he doesn't yeah. <laughs> have any understanding that you know the demonstrations are not scientific lab that might look like it, but yeah. they're not that and that you know they're trying to persuade you of that. So my wife had to explain to him in a sense she didn't use this language but the conventions of the genre of an advertisement and and he learned that. So you've learned that yeah. in your life. We have and, and so we know when we're reading poetry, English poetry, there's certain conventions that we associate mm-hmm. with that. There are conventions in biblical poetry as well or other biblical genres, some of which are very similar, some of which are fairly different. And so the we really just have to learn how to apply the conventions of the genre of the Bible that we're talking about, and and then we're on a much more solid footing. Mm-hmm. It's not rocket science, you know. That's the thing. It's not. It's not impossible to learn this, but you have to learn to ask the right questions. So, mm-hmm. is is the convention of biblical poetry, for example, are the conventions associated with biblical poetry the same as the conventions of contemporary English poetry? Well, no. Mm-hmm. There there's some similarities, but they're not exactly the same. So you have to know the differences and and apply them. But the good news is that with something like poetry, we're already oriented to that type of writing and there are lots of similarities. When we get into things like apocalyptic literature in the book of Revelation or Zephaniah and mm-hmm. and parts of Daniel, then it's much more challenging because we don't really have those genres in our society to draw analogies. We have narrative, we have mm-hmm. poetry, we have letters, uh, so we can we can draw those analogies and get ourselves up to speed fr- pretty quickly with those genres. It's harder with other genres. So there's consider the author, consider the original audience, and making sure we have the, keep those questions in mind. There's consider the genre. Yep. Um, how do we make the uh, Maybe the leap to application then. So, you know, we let's say we've um, we've just read uh, one of the Psalms, and how do how do we make that leap to application to our context? And you know, to ensure that we're actually arriving at a faithful application uh, yeah. once we've done the the good homework, you yep. know, d- done our homework on trying to arrive at what this passage means. Well, I think the one of the most important things is to so ask the question. Answer the question: What did the original audience intend to communicate to the original? I'm sorry. What did the original author <laughs> intend to communicate to the original audience? You have a good answer to that question. Then you can start to say, okay, how is my situation analogous to that of the original audience? And we have to take into consideration the fact that it's not a it's not a a straight line from say the Psalms mm-hmm. to us today because you have. Jesus, you yeah. know, the, and and whether your theological system causes you to see uh, Jesus' life and ministry as a, a huge disjunction or more of a speed bump, you know that's a theological question. There's still a difference between between that. In other words, Old Testament authors are often looking ahead mm-hmm. to the time of the Messiah. We're looking back to the time of the Messiah. When it comes to Old Testament law, for example, 
our, our relationship to Old Testament law is going to change because of Jesus, it doesn't eliminate the relationship uh, mm-hmm. between us and Old Testament law, contrary to how some people think of it, but it does change it. So we have to ask the question, how is my situation like what the mm-hmm. original audience was facing, and how is it different in light of in light of Christ? In some situations, it's not going to be all that different. You mentioned the Psalms. Think of a Psalm like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, the Psalm 23 is a psalm of of comfort that mm-hmm. comes from the presence of the presence of God and his his protection and his provision. Well, when we ask ourselves, okay, how is my situation analogous to that of David, the mm-hmm. author of, of Psalm 23? Well, obviously we live in a very technologically different world and that sort of thing, but we still face threats. We still face uncertainty. We face we can face enemies. Um, and that that's all very, very similar. And the the answer is of course, trusting God. You know, mm-hmm. your your goodness and mercy will hound me all the days of my life. That's still true for us today. And and so then we can ask the question, in light of Jesus, does it change that? Well, no, <laughs> because Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Mm-hmm. So in that instance, there's not a whole lot of, of difference, but we still have to ask those questions because it may be that there are things that are that are different. There might be psalms, for example, that are addressed to Israel as a nation and are promises to, to Israel as a nation as the, the political identification of the people of God that is redefined by Jesus such that there is no nation that's the political, re- the political identification of the people of God. So then, if we're dealing with that kind of a psalm, for example, we would have to say, okay, how is it in light of the fact that there is no nation that's the political identification of the people of God, how does this apply? And then it can be applied more personally, but not. then we're, we're moving a little bit farther away from what the original author was trying to communicate, and we have to be pretty careful and ask some really good questions to make sure we're not taking, for example, a promise that God made to Israel as that political identification of the people of God and saying, therefore, that applies to me as an individual. And so I am somehow you know, guaranteed yeah. success or, or something like that. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a good yeah. example of this. You know, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and to give you hope in a future. That's addressed to Israel. And yes, it's relevant for the people of God as individuals, but we can't take that and say, well, then I'm, I'm guaranteed success or I'm guaranteed prosperity mm-hmm. uh, in every, at every turn. And certainly our experience says that's not the case. That's because it's addressed to Israel. It's, it comes to us in a, in a somewhat different way. Is it uh, appropriate then to say that these you know, land promises or promises of prosperity that were made to the, the political nation um, of Israel in the Old Testament, we can't then make that same leap to applying those to our American context because um, it's America – we can't equate America with Israel of the Old Testament. Is that – would you absolutely. say that's inappropriate? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love this country. I'm a veteran, and I, I was proud to serve my, mm-hmm. my country. But we are not the political identification of the people of God. And, and Jesus very intentionally did not establish a mm-hmm. political entity that was the, the manifestation of his, his presence and his kingdom. In the Old Testament, Israel, Israel uh, played that role 
But when Jesus comes and redefines the people of God around himself and in a sense fulfills so much of, of those promises so that when, you know, for example, uh, Jesus talks about being the bread, the bread mm-hmm. of life, that in the Old Testament is Israel. And a lot of the things that, that the Old Testament talks about, Jesus says, in a sense, Everything that Israel is going to do and to be, I'm going to, to mm-hmm. do and to be. So if you want to become a part of the community of the people of God, you identify not with Israel, but with me. And that's true for Jews as well as for, as for Gentiles. So what he leaves out is, is a, a political entity. He's the king, but you know Yahweh was always king for the Israelites, yeah. but there was David. And then, of course, the subsequent kings. Jesus is king, but there is no human king that is uh, apart from Jesus, that's the, the manifestation of kingship. So, so we can't apply that directly. Now, can we say that God is concerned about the people of God in the United States and wants to use them as they seek to live out their calling, our calling? Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And so it's, it's relevant, but not as a direct promise. Well, and that's where this, so even proper principles of interpretation have many practical applications and and I would say incorrect uh, you know approaches to interpreting the Bible we've seen uh, have had many political consequences as well absolutely um, so I, hopefully people are, are seeing like if they haven't given thought to this conversation about how do I actually you know properly interpret scripture, Hopefully they see that this actually does have – this isn't just a conversation for ivory towers. This right. has real practical implications, yeah. and we've seen these play out even the last couple of years, I would argue. Right. Well, and I think, and I think that's – it's a vital conversation because if we, take, if we take what the author is intending to communicate and we misapply it – we're misusing scripture. Mm-hmm. I mean, Paul talks about, you know, to rightly divide the word of truth. And and what that suggests is that there is a right way and a wrong way to, to divide the word of truth. There mm-hmm. is objective truth. There is objective reality. Mm-hmm. So we can say that some interpretations are better than others. Uh, now, we have to be humble about that. And it's not that my interpretations are better than <laughs> than all others, but but some interpretations are better than, than yeah. others. And we have to be able to evaluate that and say, well, that's not a very good or sound interpretation. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we approach the Bible differently from other genres. We, we treat the Bible as if it's a genre of its own. You yeah. know, there's the Bible and there's everything else, which is true in one sense. Obviously, it's inspired. It's the Word of God. It's mm-hmm. inerrant. You know, all those things that, that no other book can claim. But at the same time, we do things to the Bible that we would never do with other texts yeah. by, by in a sense, sometimes ignoring the author's intention that we wouldn't do with other, with other books. Um, and so we have to guard against that. But it's a misuse of Scripture if we misapply it in that way, even if it might be consistent with other themes mm-hmm. of Scripture. Uh, it's, it's still a misuse of it, and we've got to guard against that. So Psalm 23 might be an easier example of how we can draw application to our life, and and maybe even just principles of interpretation. There, it's perhaps clearer than other texts. Let's take a let's go to a let's you know take a more challenging text and apply some principles of interpretation. So I'm thinking of even Genesis chapter one, 
a passage that has caused much division <laughs> within the church, sure. unfortunately. Mm-hmm. How do we apply some of these principles, principles we've been discussing to a chapter like Genesis 1? Well, nothing like going from, uh, <laughs> from, from the fairly easy to the, some of the hardest, but uh, no, no problem. Um, well, I think, first of all, the, the principles that we've been talking about are the same when it comes to this. So, and this is harder because the stakes are higher when it comes to Genesis 1. It's mm-hmm. become, I think, I think, unfortunately, it's become sometimes a litmus test for yeah. you know, your, your view of Scripture. Do you have a high view of Scripture? Mm-hmm. And if you do have a high view of Scripture, you have to have a certain stand on, on this text. But if we apply the, the principles that we were just talking about, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what did the original author intend to communicate to the original audience? Now, answering that question means we have to know something about mm-hmm who the author is and who the audience is. I take the author of Genesis to be Moses. And and I believe that he wrote this for the the Exodus generation. And I'm not certain of this, but I believe it was most likely read at Sinai um, because they were there for, for two years at Sinai. And that time at Sinai was a time of preparation uh, forming the people into a nation. You see that in the book of Numbers. Mm-hmm. It, it makes that very clear. And so, part of what Moses' challenge to do is to take this ragtag group of escaped slaves and form them into a nation. Now, mm. God is the one superintending this. Moses is a tool in God's hands. But, but from a human perspective, Moses has to do this. And so, he has to give them a worldview. Remember, they've been in Egypt for 430 years mm. at this point, and they were still readily identifiable as a people, but it seems reasonable that they were at least influenced by the uh, the views of the Egyptians when it comes to certain questions about mm-hmm. the gods and things like creation. Every, every culture, every religion more or less has a, a creation account of some sort mm-hmm. describing, uh, describing the origins, things like that. So, when we approach Genesis, we have to remember that Moses is trying to address his audience, and his audience had a whole different set of questions from the ones that we, that we have. The way I like to describe it is in Genesis 1, Moses is addressing the who of creation, the what of creation, in some respects the why of creation, not the how of creation. We come to Genesis oftentimes, and the, the main question we have is the how. We want to know how did it all happen. And part of that is because Genesis is a victim of its own success. Genesis is an argument. It's, a, it's an argument for a way of seeing the world that is radical in its day, and it's radically countercultural in its day, but it's been tamed by us because we're already convinced. So, mm-hmm. so part of what Moses is doing in Genesis, for example, is to argue that, that God, the God of the Bible, is the creator. And it wasn't Ra, the sun god. It wasn't Isis or Osiris or any of the Egyptian deities. It wasn't Marduk of the Babylonians. It wasn't Chemosh of the, of the Moabites, any of these other gods. It was, it mm. was Yahweh. And the, the narrative in Genesis 1 is structured in such a way as to force the audience to ask some really important questions. Who is this God? And, and in a sense, part of what it's doing is it's, it's arguing against what 
Moses and we would consider false conceptions of the origins of the universe, in a sense, smacking those down and hmm. saying, no, it's not that. It's, it's this. And, and so we have to remember that those are the questions that are being, that are being asked. Before we jump into more specifics, maybe one thing I should say is one principle of good interpretation that we didn't talk about before, but I think is really relevant for Genesis 1, is the role of presuppositions. That is, we come to texts with certain understandings, mm -hmm. and our tendency is to read in a way that will reinforce those, those understandings. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes it's not so helpful. And I think sometimes when it comes to a text like Genesis 1, our presuppositions are, are influencing us to see it in a certain way because that's how we're conditioned to, to see it. We have to ask ourselves, you know, what do I bring to the text with me? What do, I, what do I already know about this text? What do I think it's about? And then ask the question, is it supported by the evidence of the text mm -hmm. when, when we're looking at what did the original author intend to communicate to the original audience? What are some of the questions that you feel like we uh, – we are asking of Genesis 1 that it's just not addressing, that wasn't Moses' concern. What, what are some of the most common questions that you think yeah. we put to it today? Well, again, the how of creation. We, we are influenced in our broader culture by naturalistic evolution. Mm -hmm. and, and, so, and for many of us as followers of Jesus, we reject naturalistic evolution mm -hmm. and and so we say, well, it's not that. It's not Darwinian, you know, Darwinian mm -hmm. evolution or or this kind of thing. It's not. It's not that. So we we want to ask the question. So what is it? This this is it, and we try to make it fit mm -hmm. into certain uh, certain understandings, certain paradigms of that. So I would argue, at the risk of never being invited back on this podcast, <laughs> that uh, Genesis is not actually addressing the question of the age of the Earth, for example. Now. Personally, I think I think that's a scientific question, and I'm somewhat agnostic on that on that mm -hmm. question. I, I lean towards an old Earth creationist view. I lean towards an old Earth view, but if if somehow conclusively it was proven, you know, scientific consensus and all the all the evidence points to a young Earth, that wouldn't change my my view of Genesis mm -hmm. at all, because I don't think that's what Moses is addressing. I don't think that's a question that Moses' audience was wrestling with. Remember, they're wondering. With all the different conceptions of creation out there, they're wondering what is what is correct. Is Marduk the chief god that mm -hmm. uh, that did the creating of the universe? Is is the created order uh, from a Babylonian perspective? The created order is based on the splitting of a corpse of a slain goddess. They're wondering is that true? And Moses is saying no, that's not true, mm. and and so he's arguing against that, and and he's he's making a case for a, a radically different understanding of creation from what the Israelites, having been in Egypt, being a part of the ancient Near Eastern world, would have understood. So I think we can say that Moses, in a sense, is arguing against the Darwin of his day. Mm. Um, the prevailing view of creation in his day, but that's not the same as our view. Mm -hmm. So we have to we have to ask ourselves what is what is Moses arguing for? What is Moses arguing against? He's not arguing against Darwinian evolution. He's arguing against conceptions of creation that were false in his day and false today, mm -hmm. uh, but is trying to to give a, a make a case for that. So some examples of that um, in. If we look in Genesis chapter 1, 
in just right away in verse two, for example, the the word the deep. That's a that's a cognate word in Hebrew that it comes from a uh, from a Babylonian word that is actually the name of a goddess. I mentioned the goddess whose corpse was split uh, in in one of these stories from the ancient Eastern world. That word is present in hmm. Genesis one as a as a cognate. It's brought into to Hebrew, but it's not a goddess in Genesis one. So right away Moses is smacking down this hmm. idea that says that the deep is anything. Godlike, the deep is just something that God created, and it's it's just water. Hmm. It's not a it's not a personification of of a deity uh, the way it is in in other in other cultures. We see uh, other other examples is that the stars, for example, which in the ancient Near Eastern world, in some accounts, are semi divine and they control the the lives of human beings. You know, astrology comes from Babylonian religion and and so this idea that the stars are influential um, in in Genesis they're created on the fourth day and they're and they're an afterthought and and so in verse Genesis chapter 1 verse 16 God made two great lights the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night he also made the stars stars are an afterthought hmm. and even the reference to the sun and the moon you know, it might seem strange to us that he made the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. That's not a normal Old Testament way of referring to the sun and the moon. Here's where we, where our familiarity with the Bible becomes important because we might look at that and say, well, you know, the Bible says all kinds of weird things and, <laughs> and phrases things in, in different ways. So this is just a normal, a normal way to do it. I don't think that's the case because other authors are never afraid to use the Hebrew word for sun or the Hebrew word for the moon. So why is Moses not using those perfectly good words in this particular context? I think because the Hebrew word for sun is very, very similar to a Canaanite, the name of a Canaanite sun god. And and he's trying to deny to his audience the legitimacy of the Canaanite sun god. And the same with the moon worshipped. He's he's trying to argue that everything that's worshipped as gods by their neighbors were created by the one the one true God. And in Genesis one, that one true God is not named. It's always Elohim, which mm. is not a that's not a proper name. It's it's the word for God, or it's actually God's, but it's you know, we use it for for mm. God. The name Yahweh appears in Genesis chapter two after. There's been this kind of building up to a crescendo, I would argue, uh, to where the original audience is hearing Moses read this out and this description, and they're familiar with these ancient Near Eastern conceptions of creation. We know, for example, that some of the Babylonian creation accounts were found in Egypt, and so we know that they were, that they were there. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household to be a presumably to be a diplomat of some of some sort. He was educated in the religions of of the people around him, so he knows these things. And and so Moses presents under the inspiration of God this creation account that's like no creation account that anybody has hmm. ever heard before. And I would suggest that at at that point people are like who is this? What god is this? Where's the fighting? Where's the battle? Where's the corpse splitting? All these kinds of things that are part of the ancient Near Eastern conceptions or or in Egyptian conceptions. Where's the where's the sexual union between God and goddess that leads to the birth of of the created order. None of that is present in mm. in Genesis, and and it's all been smacked down, so that uh, the the 
the God that's described in Genesis 1 is unlike any God in the ancient Eastern world, all-powerful. He speaks and worlds appear. That, that doesn't happen. In, in Babylon, the gods have to come together to give the chief god, Marduk, enough power to, to do any kind of creating. In his own strength, he doesn't have what it takes to, to create, and he creates out of pre-existing matter. Genesis describes a God who speaks and matter appears. Uh, that's, that's unlike any God in the ancient Eastern world. So I would suggest that when this is read out and the people are hearing this, their minds are blown and they're, they're saying, which God is this? Who is this? And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it says, in the name that Yahweh Elohim created. And mm. that's when the, the chills run down the spine of the Israelites because they realize that this unparalleled God Hmm. is their God. And it's not Marduk, it's not Kemosh, anything, anything like that. It's, it's their God, Yahweh. So I, I do a thought experiment when I teach this sometimes, and I say, you know, imagine we could go in a time machine back to when this is read for the very first time. You know, we, we come across the people, Moses has just said on the day that Yahweh Elohim has created the heavens and the earth, and that that's still echoing off of uh, the mountains there. And we go up to somebody and we, we tap them on the shoulder and say, now these, uh, these days that are in the text, is that seven 24-hour days or is that something like that? I think they're going to respond and say, didn't you hear? You're asking hmm. the wrong question. Yahweh is the one that did this. Our God did this. And he's unlike any other God that's, that's ever been heard of before. And that's, I think, the point that Moses is trying to make in this, not to, to articulate the mechanics of creation, the how of creation. Um, he's trying to articulate who did it and why and what's the extent of it. Everything that's been made is made by this God, and, and he is unlike any God that's known in the ancient or Eastern world. So it's radical on its terms. Can you think of any conventions today? And this is fascinating. Uh, any conventions today where we see this kind of rhetorical argumentation take place where you're drawing on the language of the culture in, as a way of debunking that in, in a way where it's you're making an argument by actually using the the language and and convention of the of the culture you know language that people will be familiar with your sure. audience as a way of making a as a way of making an argument yeah well i think I think rhetorically we do this kind of thing all the time. We try to, you know, even in even in preaching, we'll we'll make bridges to to the culture mm-hmm. and and use terminology that is not biblical, but it nevertheless uh, it nevertheless communicates mm-hmm. to the to the culture. Um, I'm I'm having a hard time thinking of specific examples sure. right now, but but you know Paul does this in when he he sees the the statue to an unknown god. Mm-hmm. He he uses the language and the culture of that time and says this is the god that you that you were wanting to uh, to talk about and and let me explain to you who this unknown god is. Um, yeah, I, it's hard for me to come up with an example right off the top of my head yeah. on that. But uh, well, I think of some comedians. I'm not trying to argue that you know Moses is. You know, being comedic here, but you know, when you think of comedians that will draw on kind of some pop references sure. as a way, of kind of poking fun at. Yes. Um, you yeah. know, maybe it's is would it be proper to say that this is kind of maybe it's a little bit of a leap, but Moses, we see Moses doing this. He's drawing language from the surrounding culture, the the names of gods as a way of yeah, you know, debunking this idea that this you know creation uh, was birthed out of a 
yep. union between a god and goddess. And yeah, absolutely. And when you see that the the sun, for example, is created on the fourth day, that is a that's a huge affront to mm-hmm. the Egyptians, for whom Ra, the sun god, is one of the is a really important deity. Mm-hmm. And and what Moses is saying is that Ra wasn't created. The sun mm-hmm. wasn't created until until day four. And and then you see this in the in the plagues in the Exodus, where you know just about all of the plagues that come on Egypt are challenges to Egyptian gods. Mm. And and so the Nile turning to blood, for example, the Nile was considered the bloodstream of of one of the gods or goddesses. I can't remember if it's Osiris or Isis. I can't remember which. But it is a it's the bloodstream of one of the mm. of one of the gods or the goddesses. Well, that god or goddess can't even control their own bloodstream. Yahweh can turn it into blood and turn it back. Mm. Now, of course, the magicians can can imitate this, but then it gets to the point where they can't. So it's the same kind of thing where where God is being powerfully demonstrated as being greater than and unlike the the gods that the people thought were real which they aren't, but they thought were real and and that they were were worshiping. The point of that is to point to God. And and so that Yahweh is understood as the one true God and that the what we know as a triune God who has mm-hmm. eternally existed is the only God. And Moses is trying to point that out to his audience and to get them to to accept that because they have a calling. They've got the calling to be the people of God, to live as witnesses mm-hmm. to the to the people of God, uh, uh, to the people around them of who God is and what it means to be in relationship with Him. So they've got to they've got to know it and believe yeah. it and be solidified in that before they can be witnesses. Well, Peter, one final question here. I know we could talk a whole another hour probably on yeah, this, this topic. Yeah, this has been great. Um, my guess is that no one and none of our listeners need convincing that the Egyptian gods do not exist or that the Babylonian gods don't exist. I hope that's the case. I hope that's the case. <laughs> uh, if you have questions, I'd love a conversation with you at some point in the future. What, um, what's, how, how do we, if we consider what Moses' intention was here to his original audience, how, how can we draw some application to our context today? Sure. Um, given what the given what the point of Genesis one is. Yeah, great question. So, if if we take you know, we could do lots and lots of more discussion of the exegesis of this, why we mm-hmm. conclude this, but but let me give you a a thumbnail sketch of what I think Moses' intention is in in Genesis one. It's to communicate that that Yahweh, the God of Israel. Well, I'm I'm bringing in a little bit of Genesis two. Um, but the chapter divisions aren't original yeah. to the to the text anyway. So, um, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the creator of of all that is. He is responsible for the the creation of everything. There's nothing outside of him. Nothing is greater than him. And and then part of the argument, and I think this is part of the communicative intention, is that conceptions of uh, conceptions that deny those things are false. So, in other words, it's very intentionally a, a smackdown, a rejection mm-hmm. of false conceptions of, of creation. So, we're not, as you said, hopefully saying, well, you know, I think it's Marduk is is responsible. But what does it then do? It is relevant to our question mm-hmm. of 
you know, do, should we accept Darwinian evolution? I would argue that any conception of creation that denies those things that I just said Genesis is affirming are by definition false and mm-hmm. need to be rejected. So, conceptions of creation that reject the idea that God is the creator, those are false. Mm-hmm. And, and Moses is giving this as a normative understanding, a worldview that is meant to be embraced and understood. It's not optional. He's mm-hmm. not saying, well, this is one view you could hold. He's saying, this is the view. God is the creator. So, so we have to follow that. Mm-hmm. And, and so it has implications for us when it comes to things like naturalistic evolution that would deny the, the role of, of God. That, I would argue, by virtue of Genesis, mm-hmm. is wrong and is false. Now, I'm getting there in a different way, and, and you know, hopefully people are saying, well, I, I thought that before we had this conversation. And, yeah. but, but nevertheless, that would be a false conception. If, if there's any idea that, that pr- there was something that was uncreated, that would be a false conception that we would want to, that we would want to reject. And it's meant to point to the awesome nature of God. And mm. so we need to reflect on that as well, that you know, we take for granted the complexity of our universe and, and all that. And we know more about the complexity of our universe than, than Moses' audience did, but it's still meant to point to that. And it's still meant to elicit a, a worshipful response on our part to, to say this, you know, we get to know, mm. we get to know this God, the God that created all of that. And all the mysteries of the universe are nothing to him. They're not mm. mysteries at all. They're they're as simple as you know, what's two plus two. You know, we we don't have, we don't struggle with that question. Yeah. The complexity of the universe is like that to God. It's it's simple, and and we get to know him. It should elicit worship on our part. When we think of uh, earlier, you mentioned too as as Jesus followers, we we're approaching the text from a different angle, from a different viewpoint than Moses' original hearers. Right. And to think that that this same God who created everything is the same God who came and walked in the flesh, yeah, and um, died for us, and died for us, yeah. and it uh, it's a it's an amazing. I mean, that's not even that's a too small of a word in my <laughs> in my book to yeah. think of just how how awesome, amazing this God is, right? Uh, revealed in Scripture, yeah. That's where I get a little bit frustrated that we've taken the word awesome and we use it to describe a know. you know a football play or a or a movie I know. Uh, because it it really is it, it should elicit awe in us yeah. and and I think as we you know think about advent and christmas you know that the creator as colossians tells us it was jesus uh yeah. is the the person of the trinity that did the creating which moses is not arguing for or against. He, that's not the point. But that, that Jesus, who created it all, would become yeah. one with us in that way, is, it is awesome. Yeah. Well, and probably a good, uh, a good thought to end on today as Christmas is approaching. And yeah. I think a good thought to, to ponder and to consider how this impacts our, our daily living, that you know, to be wholly devoted to mm-hmm. this God yeah. Uh, revealed in Scripture, Absolutely. and um, who walked among us, yeah, um, as Jesus of Nazareth, and that's a profound thought. It is. Well, Peter, thanks for being on today. This is uh, this has been a really good conversation. I wish we had a whole another hour uh, <laughs> that we could talk through these things. And you know, these are such important topics of biblical interpretation, and whether that be from 
easier passages in the Old Testament to more challenging ones like the one we've been just discussing this morning. Um, but I want to thank you for your time, and uh, it's uh, it's been a privilege to, to be in this seat and to be the one to ask you the questions <laughs> this time. And um, I hope to hope to have you on again at some point in the some point in the future. Thanks, Tucker. It's been a, a great pleasure for me and a privilege to to be serving the people of Calvary. I have a connection with Calvary, having been on staff here at one time, and and so it's been a, a huge blessing and privilege for me as well. And I'd I'd love to come back anytime. Well, thank you. And I want to thank you as our listeners. If you'd like more information about Calvary Church, you can visit us at calvarychurch.us. You can check us out online or in person on Sunday mornings. We would encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. It also helps if you leave us a review. We look forward to having you join us again next week.